Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. I hope that everyone has had a great week. So I am doing something crazy today. I am engaging in the vaccine conversation, probably the most contentious conversation, maybe one of the most contentious conversations that's happening in this country right now. I know some of you might think I'm out of my mind for even getting into this. It is so controversial, but so many of you have asked me to talk about it. So many of you have asked me to address SB 276, which was the vaccine related law that just passed in California. So I am going to talk to someone who is more on what I call the vaccine hesitant side today. I'm also going to talk to someone in the future who is very pro vaccination because I truly, and I mean this, truly want to get both sides of it. And so I want to ask as many questions as possible, get as much information as possible so we can have an interesting and productive dialogue about this, not just about vaccines, pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, but about personal liberty and how we, again, as we've talked about before, balance freedom and harm. Um, How much personal freedom do we grant? Do we allow before harm, public harm outweighs that freedom? So that's really my concern and my interest in this but I wanted to talk to someone first from the more vaccine hesitant side, and that is Dr. Bob Sears. A lot of you guys know him. He is out of California, so he is going to provide us insight from his perspective today. But first, before I start that conversation with him, I want to make sure that you guys are getting a really good night's sleep. And that is why I always tell you about Bolster Sleep. They make awesome products. We have one of their mattresses. My husband and I both have their pillows and we swear by them because they are so comfortable. You will wake up feeling more rejuvenated. The pillow also keeps you cool, which I think is awesome. It's material called Tincel that makes sure it stays cool all night. That is really helpful if you are someone who I call like a hot sleeper. I love Bolster Sleep. They're just an awesome company. So go to bolstersleep.com. You can use promo code Allie, that's A-L-L-I-E for 12% off your purchase. You're not going to regret it. If you are someone who is a light sleeper like me and you're just looking for a way to sleep more soundly through the night, then you need to check out Bolster Sleep. That is bolstersleep.com, promo code Allie for 12% off of your purchase. Okay, let's get started with Dr. Bob Sears. Dr. Sears, thank you for joining me. Oh, you're very welcome, Ali. I'm I'm so thrilled that you uh, want to have me on your show. Yeah. Will you tell everyone who doesn't know who you are and what you do? I am a pediatrician out here in in Southern California, and I've been doing that for 21 years now. Um, But my greatest passion is actually to talk about vaccines and vaccine issues and educate people and give people informed consent about uh, vaccines. You wrote a book about vaccines, very yeah. uh, widely known book back in 2007, correct? Yeah, yes. It was yeah. called the, the, was it called the vaccine book? Right, yeah, very simple. The vaccine, yeah. Yes, very similar. You don't even have to wonder what it's about. Uh, tell me what kind of sparked your interest about vaccines, why you're passionate about telling people about them. Well, I think what made me passionate is even though, you know, vaccines are viewed as very important by most people, there is some risk. And when I was a medical student back at Georgetown back in the 90s, I actually discovered there was one vaccine that was actually pretty dangerous that they ended up taking off the market. It's the old DPT vaccine. Mm -hmm. It was causing a lot of very, very serious brain injury. It was very tragic. It was all over the news. It was a a big issue. But the medical community was covering it up. They weren't acknowledging the injuries. And I was in medical school, so I decided to dig into the, the Georgetown library and I uncovered so much research about this one vaccine. And even though it was doing some good, it was also doing a lot of harm. So they took it off the market. But for me, they took it off the market 10, 15 years later than they should have. You know, they, they should have realized the, the potential danger of this one vaccine you know, way sooner. And so it made me realize the medical community sometimes is capable of, of covering something up when there's a problem. And, and so that made me just realize I need to do my own research. I jumped right in and I just have researched every single vaccine and every detail possible so that I could really make sure I was making a, an educated decision uh, with my patients so, so I could just make sure they, they know everything that's going on, all the, the benefits of vaccination, but as well as the, the small risk of vaccination. So it all started way back in medical school. Okay, and your critics would call you anti-vax or even like a hero of the anti-vax movement. Are you anti-vaccination? 
Right. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm anti-mandatory vaccination. I'm pretty much anti-mandatory any type of medical treatment. I don't think the government has the right to do that, uh, especially something as complicated as vaccines. You know, we give 69 doses to vaccines uh, to, to children nowadays. And, you know, we give the same number of vaccines in the first six months of, of life for babies as we used to give kids throughout their entire childhood. So so complicated. So I, I'm just against mandating them. And as a pediatrician, I mean, I give them in my office here every day. And I have given some vaccines to my kids. And so, but I'm just uh, against mandates. But I think people label me as anti-vaccine because as a pediatrician, I think most pediatricians are, are pro-mandate. They think vaccines are just so good. They're so wonderful. You just have to mandate them, right? And, and whereas I take a more uh, neutral approach, and, and basically like to give informed consent to help people make these decisions. Which is a little bit different than how you're described by oh, absolutely. and people I think, in the media. I, I think people that know me know what I'm about. People that never meet me and just read about me in the media or they're, you know, a doctor somewhere, you know, that's never met me. Yeah, they definitely have the wrong impression of me. Yeah, you're described as the adjective that I've probably read the most from uh, your critics about you is dangerous. And you have been put on a 35 month, I think, probation by the Medical Board of California for I think they listed maybe multiple uh, allegations. But the main one was offering exemptions, medical exemptions to patients that they didn't actually deem um, they didn't deem in need of these medical exemptions. So can you talk about that probation? Yeah, I guess it's important to clear that up. Um, uh, my medical board probation came as a result of a court opinion letter that I wrote in a custody dispute. I saw the patient five years ago before there were any mandatory vaccination laws in California. So this was all pre-mandate. You know, and it had nothing to do with a medical exemption, actually, the truth is. Uh, and uh, a reporter in the LA Times just, just cleared up this, uh, this inaccuracy last week in a story on me. This, my exemption is not about, or my probation is not about a medical exemption. It's about a child, a baby had a very severe neurological reaction to vaccines. Uh, mom and dad stopped vaccinating. Three years later, they get divorced. It's contentious. Dad wants to f- get a judge to force vaccines to be resumed. And I took the side of the child and I wrote a letter to the judge in the case saying, this baby's vaccine reaction was so bad, I recommend he does not continue vaccines. And the judge agreed with me. He upheld my opinion. But the medical board of California felt differently. The dad reported me. And the medical board said, no, we feel like people can only opt out of vaccines if they have a severe brain-damaging neurological injury, or they go into anaphylactic shock and nearly die, and they have to be resuscitated. That's really the the medical board's uh, restrictive guidelines, whereas me as a doctor, I would judge people should be able to opt out after any potentially serious vaccine reaction. So that's what that's all about. And you're right, the medical board has a few more cases coming against me for actual medical exemptions that I've written for patients, but I stand by those exemptions. I think I, I only write them for for children in whom I think vaccines might be dangerous for them to continue. Do you, so you, we'll see. We'll see what happens with those. You feel like in their cases, the vaccines would probably do more harm than good. So that's what you feel like you are weighing against when you're looking at these patients. Um, are right. other pediatricians that you know, are, are they kind of dealing with the same struggles and obstacles that you are? Um, you know what? Uh, most doctors, probably 99% of doctors in California are now scared to even write any medical excuses from vaccines for any patients because they're seeing that the medical board is coming down on us. And I have, I have uh, maybe a dozen or so colleagues that are evaluating patients and doing what we call vaccine safety evaluations and you know, consulting with patients to determine if they should get a medical exemption. And a lot of them are following the same parameters that I am. You know, a child who had a very severe reaction shouldn't have to continue. If there's a, a younger baby in the same family, the younger baby shares the same genetic risks as the older kid. And I would judge that that kid, you know, the baby could have a bad reaction. If mom or dad had a really bad vaccine reaction, or if you know, three or four or five close relatives had very severe vaccine reactions, they all share the same genetic risks. 
And the California law actually made it very clear a few years ago, doctors are, are supposed to consider family history of vaccine reactions when we're making these safety evaluations. And so that's what myself and, our co- and my colleagues do. But again, the medical board and, and the legislators that just passed this more restrictive law in California, they're judging that, no, the only vaccine reactions that warrant an exemption are, again, what, what's called CDC contraindications. That's what I told you before. It's brain injury where it's so severe, you go into a coma and get severely brain injured, or you go into anaphylactic shock and nearly die. That's their you know, recommendation for exemption. Whereas I think most people maybe, I don't know, with a brain would, would say, no, if you have any sort of severe nerve injury or say it's a moderate allergic reaction, but you don't nearly die, or you suffer uh, like a, a terrible allergic d- disease that starts right after vaccines. And, and most people rec- recover from these vaccine reactions, but when you have something pretty serious, you might not want to continue vaccinating. And I think everyone really should have that right uh, secure for them. And then this new California law uh, overrules that, unfortunately. So do you automatically exempt someone who had a bad reaction to a particular vaccine? Or do you ever work with the family to say, okay, we know, or at least we know as best as we can that you had a bad reaction to this particular shot, DTaP or whatever it is, but I still think it's important for you to get either, you know, the polio vaccine or whatever, or do you just say, you know what, you don't need to have vaccines anymore? Well, that, that would be a case by case basis. And it depends on the severity of the reaction. You know, I have given people exemptions, say, from the, you know, from vaccines, but then we have, um, say, a measles outbreak in our area. So some people actually come and get the measles vaccine, even though we know it's going to be riskier for them, now we have an outbreak. And so we might say, well, the need for that might supersede your exemption. Yeah, if we had a polio outbreak in our area, we haven't had polio in the U.S. for 35 years, but if we were to have a polio outbreak, yeah, I would probably say, even though you had, like, say, a moderately bad reaction before, or maybe your sibling had a, a bad reaction, but polio is polio, right? And so, you know, we don't want to put you at risk of polio, so I might, I might selectively and carefully vaccinate an exempt child. It's all based on need. But, Ali, what, what I think is very concerning, what I think everybody, regardless of what you feel about vaccines, whether you think they're important or not, Um, What the California law just did last week is they took the judgment away from the doctors. Doctors no longer get to make these decisions with their individual patients. The decision is now made by the public health department, who is an appointed, hired, you know, uh, employee, uh, a bureaucrat, so to speak. Um, They now get to make these medical judgments on whether or not... uh, your, your child can be exempt after a bad reaction. And that's very uncomfortable to me. And I hope that scares everybody, that the government would say, our judgment in, in medical decisions regarding you know, a 69-dose vaccine schedule is now going to supersede the judgment of your doctor. Your doctor can't decide anymore. We get to decide. And anything that interferes with the doctor-patient relationship like that, I think, is a huge red flag and should really wake up America to to this this huge government overreach. Yes, I definitely want to get into that, the SB 276, because that's really why I think a lot of people have asked me to address this, because as you said, no matter what people think about vaccines, this makes even some of the most pro-vaccination people I know extremely uncomfortable to put this in the hands of Democrats, especially people who are conservatives. This is a conservative podcast, even though this issue isn't necessarily just a conservative one. Conservatives are typically naturally mistrusting of so much centralized power, especially when it comes Mm -hmm. to, you know, injecting something uh, into your child's body. But I want to go back just a little bit, just so I can better understand. I was talking to you before this about how I'm just kind of I'm researching uh, vaccines really kind of um, not for the first time, but learning, learning a lot, reading a lot, of course, as a mom. You said that if there was a measles outbreak or if there was a polio outbreak, I think I read that in some country they're having a a, a polio outbreak right now. So say something crazy happened, polio happens here. You said that you might uh, take some people who would be sensitive to vaccines and you would vaccinate them based on the risk. But I think the argument to that would be, 
well, why not? If, if the disease is that bad, if measles or polio is that bad, isn't it worth the risk? And the first one, why wait until there's an outbreak, until this right. person gets polio or measles? Why not just vaccinate them in the first place? Well, I mean, that, that is a, a great question. I think it's all, it's all based on risk assessment. We, we have no polio. We haven't, you know, for many years. Um, so I don't think there's any need, you know, to, to get a polio vaccine if there's risk. But um, I think, um, I mean, you know, when you look at measles, uh, measles as a disease, you know, we had a very small outbreak here in California. We've had more measles this year in the United States than we've had in about 20 years, but it's still not widespread outbreaks. These outbreaks are, are pretty well contained. The risk of measles as a disease uh, is about one in 10,000 risk of dying, right? One out of every 10,000 cases in our country will be fatal. So we haven't had a child die of measles in the United States since 2003. And all these outbreaks we've had in, in recent years, no kids have died. So it's not a disease that, that's rampaging and killing everybody left and right. Measles actually used to be viewed on par as chickenpox. You know, everyone caught measles back in the 60s and 70s. And, and it was, you know, it was, there was a Brady Bunch episode where the kids all caught measles and they acted like it was kind of a no big deal. And they were almost glad they caught measles. And I'm not, I'm not saying you should catch measles, but it used to be viewed that way. The fatality rate is extremely low. Um, the complication rate is very, very low. You can reduce the complications of measles by taking a lot of extra vitamin A. And if you're well-nourished, measles will be a very routine disease. So that's measles, right? And when you look at the MMR vaccine itself, and you're comparing you know, the danger of the disease compared to the danger of the vaccine, well- And MMR, just so everyone knows, is measles, mumps, and rubella? Correct, yeah. It's, yeah, it's measles, mumps, rubella mixed together because it's just easier to give it that way. Um, the risk of the, of the actual vaccine, every, every time there's a serious reaction to a vaccine, Ali, these are all- uh, uh, the reaction reports are sent to the government every time someone has a really serious reaction to, to a vaccine. MMR vaccine has had tens of thousands of serious reactions reported. But MMR vaccine has actually also had about 400 fatal reactions reported from it over the last 30 years. And we've had about 100 fatal reactions reported to this vaccine uh, in the last uh, 19 years, all right? So we've had one child die very tragically from measles in the last 19 years, uh, and we've had 100 people have fatal reported reactions right after the vaccination. Yeah, so you describe, yeah, to I, me, I, describe to me what, how we tie the fatal reactions to MMR. Is that investigated to know, okay, all of these are very probably linked to the vaccination and not to something else? Well, that's a good, that's a great question. A very important question, right? I mean, it's all, it's all tied together based on timing, all right? You get, you're, you're very healthy, you get an MMR vaccine and a day or two later or within a week, you suffer what's called encephalitis where the, the vaccine basically infects your brain. It's a very rare complication of the vaccine. And 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 try and even even the the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the foremost expert on vaccines, they reported on this finding uh, 20 years ago. They they did a case study. They found 48 confirmed cases of severe brain injury reactions after the MMR vaccine. That was just 48 confirmed. So when you talk about non-confirmed serious or fatal cases, it's just based on timing. You had the vaccine. You die, you know, suffer this horrible, you know, brain injuring or, or other severe allergic reaction within a few days or a week and you pass away. That gets reported to the government. Now, how many are for sure from the vaccine? We don't know, Allie, because they're actually not very carefully investigated. But I would say even if even if 10 percent of those are due to the vaccine, there's still more more fatal vaccine reactions than we do from actual fatal cases of the disease. So. I think, again, it comes down to should you as, as a healthcare consumer and a patient, should you be able to have these conversations with your doctor and assess all the data and, and kind of make these decisions for yourself? Or should the government step in and make this decision for you and make it mandatory? And, and I say no. I think uh, these always have to be op optional decisions. You know, where, where there's a risk like this, 
especially a medically known risk that's been confirmed, there has to be a choice. Why is it that with vaccines, it seems like asking questions as a parent, just asking basic questions like, hey, mm-hmm. what's in this? Are there any adverse reactions? Tell me uh, tell me the, the, the risk here. Just wondering, you know, especially when you've got this little tiny baby that's never had anything injected into its body, it's never eaten anything except for milk, and you are worried about, you know, defiling the purity of this little child. But if you ask questions, it does kind of seem like all of a sudden you are ostracized as some kind of hippie. And I'm saying this as, I'm trying to say this as a, as a neutral person on vaccines. Mm-hmm. I think that that is wrong. Why is that? Why is it that when people just ask simple questions, could be totally pro-vaccination, but they just want to know what the ri- what, what is the risk for my six-week-old, eight-week-old child? Why are they looked at like they have three heads? <laughs> yes. And that's probably the, the, the number one reason, you know, why we do the vaccine conversation uh, uh, with myself and Melissa is, is no one can have those conversations anywhere. I mean, you can't talk to your neighbors, you can't talk to your family, and you definitely can't talk to your doctor about it. And, and I'm sorry to, to say that as a doctor, but doctors just won't have this conversation with you. Um, most doctors are now kicking patients out unless they comply with the full vaccine schedule. Um, I I think doctors largely view vaccines as so critically important that there's only one right answer. And the other problem is doctors are actually trained that vaccine reactions are not real. And it's sad to say as real as they are and as, as, as clear as the evidence in the scientific literature is about vaccine reactions, we're trained in medical school all vaccine reactions are coincidental, so they don't really happen. You can just ignore them. Therefore, vaccines are perfectly safe and effective, and therefore there's only one right answer. So why would I, as a doctor, waste my time and your time having a discussion about it when there's only one thing you should choose? And it does a huge disservice, Ali. I mean, yeah, I mean, imagine you sitting there in front of a doctor and you, you ask a question and they just shut you down. I mean, you, know, you can talk about discipline all day long, they're going to prescribe you an antibiotic and they're going to warn you about the side effects. You want to go on your know, ADD medication for your child with ADD and they're going to have to warn you about the cardiac side effects and the neurological side effects and the psychiatric side effects. You can talk all day about anything else, but you can't talk about vaccines with your doctor. It's, it's taboo. And, it's, and I think wise parents are starting to realize if there's something that we can't talk about, there's got to be a reason they're not willing to talk about it. And I'm going to need to go discover for myself what's, you know, what's taboo about it. And when parents do that, they realize that even though vaccine injury is not common, it's real and they're concerned about it and they just want to know the truth and the risk. Do you think that the risk of vaccine injury and vaccine death is at all overblown? Or do you think that, uh, everyone who is talking about the risks of it have a really good handle on on the likelihood no i don't i don't think we're overblowing at all and and think about the motivation uh, of these people ali i mean a lot of people talk about you know i mean most people are motivated financially by something if they're going to go out and promote something but when you're uh, the parent of a vaccine injured child you don't have anything to gain by being vocal about it. You have everything to lose. You're going to be ostracized by your, 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 your family, your friends, the ones that really know you and love you will stand by your side. But I mean, what would be a parent's motivation to lie about vaccine injury? I mean, they, they get, now they're getting kicked out of school for not continuing vaccines. You know, if they're just going to be quiet about it and move on with their lives then they could keep all their friends and they could safely walk around the neighborhood without people looking at them funny. So there, there's, there's no motivation for these parents to lie about these vaccine injuries. And then me as a doctor and, and the, the colleagues of mine that speak out about it, you know, we, you know our, our medical licenses are at risk, our reputation's at risk. We certainly don't make any money. In fact, I lose a lot of money over this. My malpractice insurance is double. Um, I, uh, I actually can't contract with medical insurances to get insurance payments for, for patients anymore because of my probation. Actually, it cost me a lot of money to make this stand 
um, about you know vaccine safety awareness and vaccine injury awareness. So when you you know when it comes to motivation, I think motivation is, is really how you can read somebody. And you show me a parent that has a nefarious motivation for talking about that vaccine injury, and I'll stop. I'll, I'll stop talking about this because you're not going to find out those parents. Their their heart is broken. Their child is broken. Um, they have to live this vaccine injury the rest of their life. They have to take care, of their take care of their child. They simply want other parents to know. They want to know there's a risk. Um, it probably won't happen to your child, but if it does, you just got to go into this with your eyes open. That's what their motivation is. And I think it's a very pure motivation. I think that there are there are pure motives. There are pure are pure purely motivated people on both sides in that the oh, yeah. people who are pro vaccine, mm -hmm. they're very scared. I mean, and I can, I understand this. I am too. I don't, even though I, my child might not die from measles, I don't want her to get measles. You know, I don't want my right. child to get polio. I don't want to see my child suffer from whooping cough. People who have compromised immune systems feel like they are relying on other people to be immunized. Um, and so there's real fear on the other side. And then you have real mm -hmm. fear on what I like to call people who are hesitant about vaccines. I don't like to say anti-vax. I think it's used as a pejorative. Um, of the the risks that there are for injury they don't want to see their child suffer in that way they're afraid of that and i think everyone they come up with different conclusions but everyone is weighing the risks and they come up with their own decisions and i think that that is where i can i i can speak into that confidently of saying I want every parent to be able to do that. I want every parent to mm -hmm. be, as you have said, informed, fully informed. I don't want a parent who just has questions about vaccines to feel intimidated by their doctor. And I don't want the doctor to be intimidated by the medical board. I want to be able to have honest conversations about that. I want a, a parent who says, I'm all for vaccines to go for it. I want there to be a reasonable conversation on the other side about the risks as well. And I think that's where SB 276 comes in in California, um, where it seems like all of those conversations are being stifled, um, where the doctor right. probably feels very intimidated. I think that the bill says, and you can tell me exactly what the bill says, but you are basically limited. If you reach more than five medical exemptions, medical exemptions, we're not talking about philosophical exemptions, which are already outlawed in California, but medical exemptions, then that triggers Something triggers the medical board to review you and all that. Basically, you could get in trouble. So that scares me as someone who is being as neutral as possible on this. Can you talk a little bit more about it? Yeah, and, and let, let me let me touch base also on the worry. Yeah, I said a lot of things <laughs> about about unvaccinated kids, and um, you know, uh, it, you know, do does everyone need to vaccinate it in order to protect the immunocompromised kids and? keep diseases at bay. And and the way I look at that issue, Ali, and it's a very important to look at it, is almost all adults are effectively unimmunized because all our vaccines have, have worn off for the most part. And we, we have very little polio immunity. We've lost our measles immunity, mumps and rubella. We're not immune to chickenpox. We're not immune to whooping cough. Um, so the majority of, of the population or, or the herd, so to speak, is not is not immunized anymore. Uh, we, we're susceptible to these diseases, and that's the primary reason why we still see measles outbreaks. Most measles outbreaks are started by adults, uh, many of whom of whom were immunized uh, as kids, and then some of this spreads to, to immunized kids, some of this spreads to unimmunized un kids. Um, but a lot of these diseases spread among adults. So even if we vaccinate a hundred percent of children we're still gonna have uh, disease outbreaks because it'll happen in adults and it'll happen in the 5% of kids in whom the vaccines don't work. So for me, when you have one or 2% of, of children who are opting out of vaccination, that doesn't change the, the global herd immunity to any significant extent. And for me, that's why it is safe as a, as a nation, as a community, to have people be able to uh, have a, a certain percentage with medical need. Uh, children, I like to call them the vaccine compromise. You know, they've already had a severe reaction 
or they're or they're they have siblings or parents with severe reactions. Those vaccine compromised kids need to be protected as well. So I think we can do a better job uh, working uh, together for everybody instead of requiring these very strict. And you mandates. did say though that we've had more measles this year than we have in 20 years, but you did mention that only one child very tragically died back in 2003. But do you not correspond the? Out, uh, so-called, I mean, I guess it's an outbreak. I don't, I don't know if you can, what it technically is qualified mm-hmm. as an outbreak, an increase yeah. in measles. Do you not correspond that with what seems like a growing movement of vax-hesitant people? Well, the, the no, I, I don't relate it to that, Allie, because uh, measles is spreading, again, largely among um, previously vaccinated adults who have lost their immunity. Um, it just spreads around communities that way. Yes, it involves some kids too, and it involves some immu- unimmunized kids. But I don't think we're having this increase because um, of the higher number of unvaccinated children. I think we're having this increase be- just simply because adults don't have herd immunity; um, they don't have their natural immunity. And, and another big reason, actually, Ali, and there is science that that that, that looked at this is. Um, adults who caught measles, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they grew up immune and they're immune for life. So our our entire adult population actually used to be immune because everyone used to catch measles. Now, all the older people who have natural immunity, they're all passing on, you know, passing on with life. They're all passing away from, you know, natural causes and whatever. Our, our, Our middle age adult population now are all the ones that were vaccinated for measles in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So they never got natural immunity. So now we have this huge adult growing population who are susceptible, right? So they're the ones catching measles. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, our entire adult population was a lot more immune naturally from having caught the disease. So we weren't seeing the disease spread way back then. So I think that's why we're seeing more measles now not because of un- unimmunized kids. And, and so that's why I don't think we, we need to discriminate against these unimmunized kids or come down hard on them or mandate things because we have this huge adult population uh, uh, who are unimmunized to, to deal with. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I've definitely, I've never heard that before. I would love to look at some studies of, of who is actually catching or at least the age range of people that are catching measles. And I don't know if we can know if they were vaccinated or not, but that would be really interesting to look at. I'm sure this right, is- Right, we, we, we have We have those data. And, oh, okay. and Melissa has those data. She loves to talk about yeah. it. We could, we could have that conversation sometime. Um, I don't have it in front of me. That's it's, okay. You know, in my age, it's hard to you know always oh, yeah. memorize all these numbers, <laughs> but that's what, that's what my partner is for in this, in, uh, in this endeavor. Um, you know, you asked about the law. Yes. Uh, about this, specifically about the law. Um, what did you ask me again? I forget. Well, I, I want to hear from you what exactly it is. I, I do know, oh, yes, like yes, I said, the, yeah. the five okay. exemptions, but if you could go into detail on what this is. Okay. All right. Right. Well, what this new California law does, it basically sets up a new system for writing medical exemptions starting next year, um, 2020 or 2021, I forget, it's one of those two years. Um, uh, Doctors will now write an exemption letter and send it to the public health department for approval and for review. Every single Um, one? um, uh, Every single one will, uh, it'll either get sent to the health, health department for approval or it'll get sent to the school and then the school will send it to the health department for approval, one of those two. and the health department will look at these exemptions and verify if the exemption was based on the CDC criteria. Basically, did, did the child have anaphylactic shock and nearly die, or was the child severely brain injured and, and go into a coma and suffer you know, severe neurological damage? And if that happened, then that child can be exempt from that one vaccine that caused that reaction. But we won't exempt the child from all the other vaccines. You'll still have to continue to vaccinate. And oh, if that happened to your uh, first child, your second child will not get an exemption. Your second child will have to get the same vaccine that caused that very severe injury. And then if the public health department finds exemptions that were written for any other reason, like say just more moderate severe reactions like what I write now, 
If they find exemptions like that, they'll report you to the medical board. And if you write more than five in a year, they will review all yours, you know, directly. Um, it's a it's a very broken system. Um, now, the exemptions that people have been writing as of now, as of this year, like all the old exemptions from the past few years, that's kind of uh, uncertain right now. We think those exemptions are going to be grandfathered in and not revoked, but only until your child um, reaches kindergarten if they're younger, or only until your child reaches seventh grade if they're already in elementary school. Once your child meet, reaches one of those checkpoints, kindergarten or seventh grade, then the exemption will be revoked. And you'll then need to get a new exemption under the new guidelines. And um, it's, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling how a government could think that that's a better idea for its people uh, compared to the, the current system. Just, it just blows my mind. And is this for children that are only attending public private school? Can, if, if someone is homeschooled, are, are they somehow mandated to be vac vaccinated as well? No, uh, homeschoolers are not subject to this law. And, and so I think we're going to have a lot of homeschoolers. Homeschooling has already tripled in California when they passed the first law four years ago. Uh, we're now going to have a lot more homeschooling families because, you know, these families are not, you know, most of them are not going to be comfortable continuing vaccines and they're at-risk kids. And I actually, I think I worry that we're going to, uh, schools are going to lose funding. Their populations are going to decrease because of this. And they're going to lose funds. People are going to lose their jobs. It's going to cause a big kind of upheaval in the educational system, you know, a public school, private school, religious school, all daycares, you can't register your child anywhere anymore unless you, uh, unless you get vaccinated or you have a qualifying medical reason to opt out of vaccines. I think some people, I've heard actually stories of people who do have a vaccine injured child who they believe was injured from a vaccine. They're in California. They're trying to find a pediatrician to take them in. And some pediatricians won't even see them, even though their child is legitimately injured, won't even see them because of the risk. And it seems like this law could maybe exacerbate that. Yeah, yeah. Again, Allie, because what is that doctor thinking? That doctor is thinking your child's vaccine injury is not real. It didn't happen. It was coincidental. Even if it happened, you know, one hour after a group of five vaccines, your child crashes and burns and is severely brain injured, you know, not automobile crash and burn. I just mean they, they just deteriorate be, you know, before your eyes and suffer severe neurological injury. Even if that happens, doctors are trained that that's just not real. It would have happened anyway. It would have just randomly happened even if we had not just done these five injections. That's literally how doctors see this, Allie. So they do not want to acknowledge vaccine injury. So they're just, they just don't want it in their office. And I don't know if it's a protective mechanism. I don't know if they're, they're, they're worried about facing something that's uncomfortable. You know, they were taught vaccines are 100% safe. So they've been giving them to their patients all these years. Yeah, the occasional you know, patient has a severe reaction and leaves their office, leaves their practice, so it doesn't stay in their mind. Maybe it's just more comfortable for them to continue practicing just kind of in their, in their bubble of, of not acknowledging real vaccine injury. And I think that just does, just does a huge disservice to these families. Um, you might not know that, but uh, doctors do have a financial incentive to vaccinate. Insurance companies actually now give doctors year-end bonuses in the hundreds of thousands of dollars if they have a very high rate of fully vaccinated patients in their office. So very sadly, these families that are either vaccine injured and opt out or the families that choose not to vaccinate in the first place, they are now actually hurting the bottom line of these doctors. And I, I, would, I would actually not say that, I don't think that's what motivates most of these doctors. I don't, I don't think they're financially motivated, but I think that's part of their, their fear. They're just trying to make a decent living and insurance pays so little to begin with. If they can get these year-end bonuses, it really helps their business. And then sadly, that that's probably in part what is affecting their, their unwillingness to serve these uh, patients. Senator Pan, that's his name, correct? Mm -hmm. 
the yeah. guy who really um, was in charge of SB 276, he has a list of myths on his site or what he calls myths on his site and what he calls truths to combat that myth. And one thing that he says is that it's actually a myth that doctors in any way financially benefit from vaccines, but you're saying that's untrue. Right. Right. Yeah. We, we showed the legislators or a friend of mine that that practice is near me. He showed me his medical insurance contract, and it says very clearly for every child in his practice that gets the MMR and the chickenpox vaccine, we will give you a $150 year-end bonus. So if he has a thousand kids in his practice that he's vaccinating with MMR and chickenpox that year, that's a $150,000 bonus he gets at the end of the year. He showed it to me and we showed this to legislators. Legislators don't believe it either. We showed this in print, the actual contract. Um, and they were shocked. But again, um, you, know, you alluded to this uh, earlier, but people have to realize this, this um, mandatory vaccine agenda is very largely a Democratic Party agenda. And, and Democrats are, are, are dumbfounded as to why. I mean, the Democratic Party often is kind of founded on, on, on individual freedoms and, you know, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, it's a government you know, for the people and, um, and you, know, you know, not having government overreach and, you know, uh, and it's it's strange when I talk to most Democrats and Republicans uh, too, as far as citizens, almost every one of them is against mandatory vaccines, especially this new law, especially after you've already been injured. But for some reason, the Democratic legislators won't budge. Their party is pushing this agenda, and I, I've sat in front of a number of these Democratic legislators. They told me I agree with you. Dr. Sears, you are right. I agree with you, but I can't vote that way. If I vote that way, I'll be screwed by my party. Um, I'll, I'll get in trouble. I'll lose the support of my, my fellow party members. It's very sad. Um, and I think the public needs to wake up to, to, you know, to what's really going on. And um, you really need to make your voices heard and heard loud because they're not listening. And there's some sort of influence over them that, that kind of baffles uh, all of our minds. What incentive would these legislators have, like Senator Pan, to push something like this? I mean, there's definitely an argument on that side for just public health, that this is a public right, health right. issue. Um, but I know a lot of people on the other side aren't really buying that. There's a lot of talk of big pharma, and I don't really know that much about that. Is that it, part of the ulterior motive that you feel like these legislators have? Well, I think uh, this is not going to be news to your listeners, Allie. Um, big business donates billions of dollars to legislators. I mean, that's not news to anybody. Uh, big oil donates, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, farm workers unions, teachers unions, uh, any kind of big business, you know, uh, cellular industry, you know, tech industry, and the pharmaceutical industry. They all donate billions of dollars to legislators. And so the legislators... They're, they are sadly beholden to, to people who donate to them. And, and here's kind of the, the, you know, and we know Senator Pan out in California, he was one of the largest recipients of pharmaceutical donations uh, over the last few years. And I, I don't know if this number is exactly correct, but uh, a number from last year said, I think 40% of all his donations were from the pharmaceutical industry. And, 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 I mean, you can't say there's nothing illegal about that. And you might say it's unethical, but it's not illegal to accept these donations and then and then act on them. I mean, that's just the nature of, of our of our process. But here's where here's where it goes wrong, and here's where I have a problem, Allie. You may or may not know, but in 1986, the government passed the Vaccine Injury Compensation Act, and they gave pharmaceutical companies liability from all vaccine injuries. So many kids were getting injured by vaccines. Pharma said, we, we can't make vaccines anymore. They're, they're costing us too much in, in, in injury liability. So Congress said, okay, we'll take away liability so people can't sue you anymore, but we're gonna want you to work on vaccine safety and start researching more. So that was 30 years ago. Meanwhile, pharma has not done anything to make vaccines safer. They've just come out with more vaccines because now vaccines are liability free. So why not make more of them? Because, you know, 
even if they cause harm, it's okay, you can't get sued. But that, again, that's not even the bad part. Meanwhile, pharma over the last 30 years has donated billions and billions of dollars to all these legislators. Now, these legislators are mandating pharma's liability-free products. And to me, that's where they've gone too far. Congress did pharma a favor to take away liability. Pharma returned the favor by donating billions of dollars to, to government and legislators. And now legislators are going to mandate those actual products that they made liability free and that they're getting you know, billions of donations for. How can that possibly be ethical by, by any standard? And to me, that's really the ultimate way where they've crossed the line with this law. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say vaccines are important. It's another thing to say they're mandated for school. You have no choice. And if you don't get in line and keep doing it after an injury, we're going to kick you out. We're going to segregate you. We're going to discriminate against you. This isn't, you know, separate and equal schools. This is no schools for certain people now. And that just that just devastates me. And, and I hope the American public will wake up to this. Does SB 276 say that you have to get every single vaccine that the CDC recommends, like even rotavirus or something like that? A great question. No, the, the law only mandates about half of the vaccines on the schedule for now. Um, but the law can expand any time to include any new vaccines and any recent vaccines that have been added. So, uh, I mean, there, you know, right now, again, we give 69 doses of 16 different vaccines. The law mandates about half of them, but they're going to add them on. They might add, you know, HPV vaccine. They can add rotavirus, pneumococcal, flu shots, um, hepatitis A. I mean, they, they can add any vaccine they want to in the future, and they will. I mean, why wouldn't they, Ali? I mean, no government is going to mandate these and just stick to the, the you know, the, the doses that, you know, that they, they're in the law now. Of course, they're going to add all the new vaccines. And that's why people need to stand up now to this, because if we let this start rolling over across the country and state by state starts passing these same laws, I mean, it, it's... I, I hope it doesn't go there. I hope people wake up to this. And I almost think this even could backfire on them. If, if too many Americans realize that the government has gone too far, they might stand up. And this might bring down the whole vaccine industry because people are now starting to realize of the, the conflicts of interest and follow the money and the, you know, the denial of vaccine injury. When people start to realize all that and now they're turning it into laws, you know, uh, you know, Hopefully people will rise up and, and we'll have a huge change to the system where we can make it better and safer for everybody. I think it's unfortunate how they have gone about this in California, because this is and again, I'm not even I'm not assuming that you agree with all my politics, but something that we talk about um, on this podcast is that how the left does things can alienate people. You could maybe say that about the right as well, but coming from a conservative perspective, how they do things pushes people towards the center and even towards the right. And I think that's true about this. The only reason why I'm even having this conversation, why it even came to mind is because of the issue of personal liberty. Um, and there's always, there's always in everything, whether you're talking about guns or whether you're talking about vaccines, there is always a balance to strike between freedom and harm. Mm. How much personal freedom can we grant someone until the harm just begins to outweigh it? As a conservative, I typically go on the side of, of freedom. Um, and so I think that is, uh, I think that is the issue here. And that's what people are afraid of, that even people that are pro-vaccine, that might be a Democrat, that might be on the left, they're like, okay, I, I am pro-vaccination, but I want to be able to ask questions. I want to be informed. And I certainly don't want the state and bureaucrats deciding whether or not my child was injured enough to have a vaccine like it's that's just very hard to prove as well um and i think that that's the concern and if i'm just being totally candid again as a neutral person in all of this that is my concern as well i'm always concerned with government over overreach but especially when it comes to our children especially from the party who talks so much about bodily autonomy and talks so much about the private decisions between um uh you know an ob and a woman to be able to have an abortion or not all of a sudden that's thrown out the window and that 
that does kind of confuse me a little bit as someone who does see benefits in vaccines. Yeah, I hear the same thing from all my my Democratic friends here in California. They're they're just their minds are boggled. Why, you know, out of one side of the mouth, the Democrats can talk about everything you just said. And then, and then on the other side of the mouth, they can say, we're going to mandate vaccines. And even after vaccine injury, you still have to keep getting them or, or you're, you know, kicked out of a society. Uh, again, it's and I, I can't say it enough. It's not the Democratic people. It's not the, the Democratic voters. There's something strange going on in the legislative house that is driving this. And, and they're, I mean, all, so many of their Democratic constituents are calling these offices and saying, please don't vote for this bill. And they're just not listening. And again, it, it, it probably just comes down to the, the pharma agenda, the medical agenda. That's just, you know, pharma is just one of the biggest industries that has a hold on our government. And I think, I think everyone nationwide wants to fix that part of our government. They don't want big industry to have this stranglehold on our government anymore, but no one knows how to fix it. People always say, well, I'll just vote them out. Well, you know, farmers is just farmers just going to vote in the next person, right? Uh, until we fix that system of people being able to have such influence by, by, you know, by any sort of large corporations, until we fix that, I think we're going to continue to see this uh, this problem, and not just in the area of mandatory vaccines, but in a lot of areas. So stand up now, stand up now while you still can. Yes, I think they're um, going about it the wrong way. If you want to educate people about the benefits of vaccines, I think that can be a very good thing. But mm -hmm. when you start telling someone that you have to do something, and by the way, if you ask about what's in this, um, if you ask about the risks, then you are going to be bullied into silence then that makes people inherently start questioning, well, what, why? What are you hiding? Maybe they're not hiding anything, but it makes people, very thoughtful people, not conspiracy theorists, just thoughtful people say, well, hang on just a second. Do I not have a right to know? So I think that they're going about it completely the wrong way. One other question that I had is about... Um, does this cover, does this law cover delayed vaccine schedules? You came up with the delayed vaccine schedule. I've been told by pediatricians that there is no medical research at all supporting um, delaying vaccines or spreading them out. Does this law have anything to do with that? Can you still delay them if you want to? Yes. Yeah, you can still delay. And that's what a lot of my patients are doing. Um, uh, they, you know, most of my patients don't vaccinate any, anymore because I'm the only office they can come to, you know, in all of Southern California. So people flock to me from everywhere because because uh, I'm the only one that'll see them. So sort of by default, I have this large pa population of unvaccinated patients, but a lot of them uh, uh, will start vaccinating in order to go to school. But yes, the law does allow you to delay them. You don't have to do them during infancy. You can just start them when your child's two, three, or four years old. You just have to get on, sort of get on board with part of the schedule by the time you enter school. And so that's something I'm guiding a lot of my patients through, through that process of delayed vaccination, but meeting the school requirements because they don't have a, a good uh, legitimate medical reason to opt out of the vaccines. What are you telling people who are very scared right now. A lot of people are super, super concerned. And I think for good reason, just from a liberty standpoint about the law in California and what kind of precedent that sets, what do you tell people who are worried? Well, I'm telling people that one of the biggest problems in this, in this issue is everyone's been silent for too long about their vaccine injury. Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you had a severely vaccine injured child. You just didn't tell anybody out of fear. You just kind of went you know, home and then you know, just lived the rest of your home quietly. Uh, um, the more people that start talking about it, the more friends and family members that start to realize, hey, you know, I've been your friend for five years. I always wondered what was, you know, why your child seemed neurologically injured. You know, why don't you tell me about it? You start talking about it. And they start understanding you, start listening and understanding what happened to your child, then then those people will start, you know, will stand behind you and get on board with you. 
And if, if all friends and family and neighbors got behind every vaccine injured child because their family is now talking about it and publicizing it, then whole neighborhoods would sort of would could be could work together on this and communities. They could all go to the legislators together and there could be, you know, a hundred fully vaccinated families standing behind their one neighbor who suffered a terrible vaccine injury and said and say, hey, we love this person. We're going to stand up for them and stand up for their rights. You can't mandate vaccines for them, even though we all, you know, we all think that vaccines are good and, and we did them all with our kids and our kids all got through them okay. We're not going to let you segregate or discriminate against our one neighbor who was injured. If if more people could band together that way and, and stand up, I think we'd be in a much better place. That's why what I tell my my vaccine injured patients or their ones who, uh, you know, who have, you know, more kids uh, after a vaccine injury, I just tell them, just stop being quiet about it. Have the conversation. You know, wear interesting T-shirts that, that spark conversation. You know, uh, um, you know, at grocery stores that you're at, that you're getting your hair cut, getting your nails done. You're at the gym working out wherever you are. You know, strike up these conversations. The more humanity that we show, the more personal, person-to-person relationships we can, we can uh, establish, and just that are safe places just to talk about this. And the more that it's out there, um, I think the better community we'll have, the better country we'll have, and we'll be able to to deal with this problem once and for all instead of shove, you know, sweeping it under a rug and not talking about it, just ignoring it and, and moving on with mandates instead of doing what we really need to do, which is address why vaccine injuries happen and, and how, to, how to make vaccines safer. So talk about it, have the conversation. I am definitely inclined towards conversation and dialogue. I think there are very few things that can't be made better by that. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the temperament of our country and a lot of things, definitely not just vaccines, but Mm -hmm. a lot of different freedoms that we have. It doesn't seem like we can have just a dialogue where both sides can have questions. I know a lot of pro-vaccine people that have a lot of questions for the vax-hesitant people and vice versa. But so often it turns to this yelling match where both sides are accusing them of hating children. (laughs) Both sides are accusing them of wanting children dead. I don't think either side wants that. I don't think either side wants that, which is why I think it was important for me and very informative for me to have this conversation with you because, um, I appreciate hearing from all sides, like you have said, and I've read that you have said this, um, this is complex. We treat it like it is so simple, like it's so duh, but people have legitimate concerns and that's why I think it's, um, it's worth talking about. If you could direct people to where they can find you and where they can learn more about what you do, that would be great. Well, yeah, I, I have the vaccine conversation podcast with Melissa and Dr. Bob, um, Melissa is my partner in everything to do with vaccines. Uh, you know, we speak together, we write, we do a lot of research together. And last year we started podcasting. Um, and it's it's funny, you would think a, a podcast about vaccines would be super boring. But let me tell you, <laughs> the reason I have so much fun doing it is, is Melissa just makes it so much more interesting. Instead of me just being a doctor, you know, talking about medicine all day, she brings in the the humanity and the mom's perspective and the you know, the statistical analysis. She's a real science-based background. And and so we just have this fun conversation for an hour, a couple times a week. Uh, every top, every every episode is about one little aspect about vaccines. We talk about pretty much every single thing you could ever want to know about vaccines and the diseases. You know, we talk about what the disease risk is, what the vaccine risk is, herd immunity, social media, you know, the media myths, uh, legislative, you know, uh, stuff, um, uh, you know, old research articles. We actually go back 150 years and talk about some of the, the very, the origins of the, you know, like the anti-compulsory vaccination movement. And they bring out these, you know, old historical documents and talk about them. And, and it's so funny, we actually found there is like a, there is a Melissa and Dr. Bob 150 years ago that were touring around San Diego trying to warn people about the dangers of the smallpox vaccination. And and they had all the same issues back then as we do today. Government overreach, medical, you know, the medical system coming down on everybody and everyone denying that that uh, smallpox vaccine injury was real. And it was real. 
So it's just so fun. I mean, we just have all these great conversations. It's a lot of fun. It's just the vaccine conversation podcast. And um, I'm going to keep doing that the rest of my life, hopefully, because I, I don't think I've ever found anything more fun. Um, more, it's a lot more fun than writing about vaccines is uh, simply having a conversation with someone that I like to talk to about it. Do you have an episode, one thing that we didn't address that we don't have time to, but I wish that we did was the aborted fetal parts that I used to actually think was just a conspiracy theory. And then it's, it's not, it's a known thing. It's the CDC says that there are, um, do you have an episode on that that people could listen to since we don't have time to discuss it today? You know what? We don't, but it's a good um, one to do. We will soon. <laughs> I'll put that on the list uh, for maybe next week's agenda. We just clarify, you know, the, the actual FDA documents that verify uh, the presence of aborted fetal DNA and proteins in vaccines. Yes, and there are a lot of different, I'm a Christian, so there's a lot of different Christian ethical perspectives on that. Some that say it's okay because we're not directly supporting abortion. Some that obviously say it's it's not okay because you're indirectly supporting abortion and we're pro-life. And so there are a lot of different perspectives on that. I think it would be interesting to hear people talk about right. it and, for sure. And it's a little scary to know that the actual physical fragments of, of that fetus's DNA and proteins from the from that fetus actually are still in the vaccine solution that's injected into you. And I think people need to know that because that, I mean, could it be harmless? Probably, but is, is that that's kind of, a, I think, an ethical dilemma that, that Christians have to be aware of. Yes, and I am always for more research, more information, more conversations, less fear-mongering, more just yeah. factual-based dialogue about this. So thank you for facilitating that. And thanks for taking the time to come on my show. Sure. Thanks a lot, Allie. 